Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined, as always, by the second most handsome doctor in North America, <laughs> Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm here. Doing all right. It's episode 123. We're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine and some other vaccines. We're going full medical on this one. I, I think it's time for us to fully admit that we're in the pockets of big pharma. And uh, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> you know what? Before we get into this podcast, let's just give a little update. Austin, uh, how's it going, man? Uh, things are going all right on my end. Uh, life is mostly status quo on the work front. I know that uh, COVID is kind of picking up in my area. Hospital's been relatively full recently. And then on the training front, things are going okay there too. Elbow's doing all right. Deadlift's doing all right. Squat's doing all right. So can't complain. <laughs> Yeah, I think what happened is when my meet got canceled and my my motivation to continue to chase PRs at the time crashed, the universe r- realized that there was a ripple and they go, ah, Austin now needs to take the reins <laughs> and have a good run of training. And so the, sh- the the power, the balance of power has shifted now in your favor. So yeah, I'm good with it. And then when it flips back, I just flip back into apathy mode and that's how I cope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like a, Whatever the the resistance training equivalent is of like mania and depression, <laughs> <laughs> it's like apathy and like <laughs> high levels of motivation. Yeah, yeah. Between. How about how about you? Uh, well, on the training front, I mean, I, yeah, I'm running actually the our hypertrophy two template, which and I just subbed all the movements for stuff that I don't normally do. So like high bar squat, sumo deadlifts, a lot of dumbbell work. Um, I can tell that I'm still strong because like my numbers are high. Like I squatted 455 for three sets of eight beltless high bar at seven, you know? So I am demonstrably strong, quote unquote, for me. Uh, What I I sumo deadlifted uh, was at 585 for three sets of eight, which is, you know, again, it's just, well, you're just cheating at that point, to be honest. (laughs) So, but the most impressive thing, emphasis on the press i uh on a, a low incline bench press i did the 150s for a set of 10 which honestly getting the things up is the hardest part of that because like i mean it, you know it's a 300 pound deadlift which is not hard but like getting them onto your chest without like either killing yourself or dropping the weight is uh is difficult so now i understand why the the, the bodybuilders actually have their buddy or buddies like hand them the things but i'm like no i can do this this is fine and then you're like whoa this weighs more than me (laughs) yeah um what are you what are you reading these days uh let's see i've been reading actually a lot of papers as far as some of the projects that we're working on behind the scenes uh most recently let me think i listened to a couple audiobooks on my routine drives back and forth um i actually listened to uh obama's book that he put out uh just because, and then currently I'm listening to a book called the mindful athlete by George Mumford. Uh, oh yeah. Which is decent. Uh, I would say that most of it is not necessarily new content, but uh, at least, uh, for us, like a lot of it is topics that we talk about, but that's kind of what I'm working through right now. Uh, did you ever re- read the, was it the inner game of tennis? No. Yeah. That's the only, like I have that Mumford book like downloaded. I haven't yeah. started it yet yeah. because I, like you have been just 
I'm, now I'm neck deep. I think the last podcast we released, I said I was waist deep in like <laughs> nutrition and exercise science papers, but I'm yeah. like neck deep on this nutrition book. I, I, I'm trying to count the tabs that I have open. So I have four separate windows. They're four separate topics and they're completely lined with Sci-Hub tabs. Like you can't <laughs> even see the title. And uh, yeah, the our citation list is growing wildly. I'll be really surprised if this thing comes in at under 300 citations, which doesn't necessarily speak to the quality of the content, but the accuracy should be should be high. Uh, so I'm pretty excited for this for this project to uh, be fully realized. Yeah, uh, now yeah, it's getting there. More importantly, because you know we're in digital age, what uh, Netflix series are you watching? Um, let's see. Lorraine uh, recommended that we watch The Umbrella Academy on Netflix, so we actually watched that. The last series that I had watched prior to that was a couple months back. I actually watched uh, Peaky Blinders, which was excellent. Uh, but more recently, that's what we just got through. Have you checked out Queen's Gambit yet? Uh, she watched that. I have not watched it yet. Look, I'm not a chess aficionado. I don't know anything about chess. I mean, I could play chess, but, you know, I'm not into it. I don't subscribe to like a chess magazine. I've never (laughs) (laughs) played a computer in chess. You know, whatever. It's not my, as Austin Powers said, it's not my bag, baby. But uh, great. Oh, my gosh. I love that series. And then I just finished Manhunt, which is the story of the 1996 uh, Olympic bombing, Olympic Park bombing at Centennial Park. So, with the Richard Jewell kind of yep. thing, uh, which I actually thought the series was better than there was a movie about Richard Jewell. And I think the series is actually a little bit better. So look, we're, most of us are at home and, you know, we're supposed to be at home in, under, in some capacity. So you guys got stuff to do now. All right. There you go. We're going we're gonna to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. Hopefully it gets us out of the home. Um, but first off some disclaimers, Austin, you want to lead this off? Yeah, I think that, you know, given the fact that we're physicians and for talking about this thing, it's common for accusations to fly about, uh, secondary motives and things like that. So I think it's important upfront to say that we don't have any financial incentives or kind of conflicts of interest with respect to the vaccine or any other treatment modality for COVID, like any of the medications that um, have or haven't been approved uh, for for treating it. I personally work in a hospital. I see, I treat COVID patients. Um, My pay is straight salary, regardless of how many patients I see, whether they have COVID or not, whether I use a drug or don't use a drug, whether I order a test or I don't order a test. So none of that stuff uh, really impacts me from that standpoint. I just go in, do the stuff and leave. Um, What about you? Anything you'd want to say on that front? I mean, I look. I'm I'm only a physician on the internet. I have my <laughs> I have my medical license in a number of states, but I I don't actually see patients. I don't I don't treat patients, and uh, I have no investments or ties in any way to any pharmaceutical company or other healthcare you know organization. Um, you know, the interesting thing is because because yeah, people will try to make this link between physicians and big pharma. It, it's actually relatively rare for um, physicians to have any sort of active financial tie to uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, with respect to vaccines. So for example, Dr. Paul Offit, who actually has published a a lot of information on vaccines, both in the academic literature and then also like, you know, uh, uh, like kind of pop science. It's, it's more than pop science, but it's, you know, you can buy his books is what it's I'm saying. For the lay public. At. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And they're really actually great reads. The Do You Believe in Magic and like, uh, Pandora's lab. I think he Pandora's lab. Yeah. 
Yep. Great, great reads. Um, Bad Faith is another good one. In any case, uh, he actually created, invented the rotavirus vaccine, which uh, is a vaccine given to um, pediatric population to prevent diarrheal diseases from the rotavirus. He lit, I mean, he came up with the vaccine. He received zero money from people getting the rotavirus vaccine. Effectively, he uh, sold, you know, his science to a pharmaceutical company and that was the end of it. And for that, uh, he didn't get any like residual or, or royalties or anything like that. But basically, University of Pennsylvania and the children's hospital there gave him like a chair not like a, they gave him a chair to sit on. They gave him a chair of the department um, that he's, you know, he now has. That was like their kind of, hey, good job. But yeah, he gets the same amount of money as we get from recommending people get the rotavirus vaccine, and he invented the thing. He invented the thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, pr- relatively rare. Not to say that it never happens, but uh, with respect to vaccines, yeah, we're not making any money off telling you guys about the vaccine uh, or telling you to get the vaccine if you fit the. Uh, criteria yeah. for for those. It'd, it'd be preferable if people got it and didn't get COVID. So my hospital and as a result, myself are not as busy. <laughs> right. You'd actually, yeah, yeah. This is one of the, and, and interestingly, you'll, you'll hear us refer to um, the vaccine's effect uh, as far as like preventing COVID-19 from occurring secondary to the SARS-CoV-2 virus preventing. We're not even talking about risk reduction here. We're just talking, we're actually talking about prevention, which is uh, something we don't normally do. So um making sure our language is on point. So the, the purpose of this podcast really is to discuss the Pfizer uh, slash BioNTech vaccine. BioNTech was a sponsor that worked cooperatively with Pfizer to you know, come up with this vaccine. We're not going to discuss the Moderna, AZ, Oxford, J&J vaccine candidates. Um, they're all a little bit earlier on in testing and uh, haven't really been recommended for approval. Uh, the question is, like, why are we doing this? And, and the idea is that we're trying to be honest brokers of scientific information surrounding this vaccine to the public. We know that we have a good listenership here. Um, each month we get, you know, 100,000 or so uh, downloads. And uh, so a lot of people are tuning in and uh, we'd like to provide accurate, high quality information. And through that lens, we know that there is controversy surrounding this vaccine. So a recent AP poll suggested that a quarter of Americans say that they won't get the vaccine. And another quarter says they're unsure about it, which, uh, you know, that, that's not great. So roughly half of the population in the United States is like, nah, I'm good. And uh, to the extent that we can move the needle there, we're going we're gonna to try to do that, uh, you know, based on high quality scientific evidence of and what we know right now. Uh, it, other vaccine campaigns have been relatively successful, uh, but... This one is very important, obviously, because of the effect on not only health outcomes, but also the world economy and, you know, our, our, our life. Uh, we need at least 70% of the population to get vaccinated to really approach what's known as herd immunity. Um, but yeah, other vaccination campaigns have been successful and becoming more successful, partially through uh, an increase in accurate, digestible um, scientific communication. So for example, the childhood vaccines, which is like a seven vaccine series, uh, the vaccination rate has actually gone up from 44 to 70% over the last seven years. So that's from 2009 to 2017. Um, for adolescents, the Tdap vaccine, which stands for tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, uh, the vaccination rates for that in adolescents have increased from 40% in 2008 to 89% in 2017. 
And in adults, the influenza vaccination rate, so that's for the flu, amongst those 18 and over has increased from 9% in 1989 to 42% in 2016. And so if we can provide additional high-quality information, this may help increase vaccination rates for COVID-19, thereby helping to achieve herd immunity and uh, kind of getting us all out of the current predicament that we're in. So we're going to like try to do the best we can. But in saying all that, we understand that there are other barriers that may be applicable uh, to this vaccine uh, as far as people getting it or uh, uh, you know, ultimately becoming um, immune. So for example, a, a study done in the late 2000s found uh, that there, there were multiple barriers to U.S. citizens getting immunizations. Uh, one set of barriers are called systems barriers, so like inadequate organization of the healthcare system. Um, so people like couldn't get to the doctor, uh, or if they did get to the doctor, there weren't vaccines available to them. Um, there were healthcare provider barriers, so like the clinicians were not adequately trained to administer the vaccine. Um, then there were also parent and patient barriers, like fear of immunization-related adverse events. But the most significant systems, uh, the most significant barriers uh, to vaccinations were systems barriers. Uh, basically supply and distribution of the vaccines themselves. So I'm not sure what the barriers are going to be for COVID-19, but to the extent that we can move the needle, see what I did there, uh, to uh, helping us all achieve uh, herd immunity here, uh, we're going we're gonna to try. Yeah, you, so, can, you can view, if you view vaccine uptake as a health-related behavior, then we're aiming for, as with almost everything else we talk about, some form of behavior change. And providing information slash education is only one part of the kind of behavior change process. And there's going to be a whole bunch of other barriers for any given individual in any given place at any given time that may make it more or less likely that they will, you know, pursue that behavior and, and uh, you know, take the, take the vaccine. Yeah, ideally to the extent that additional information works. <laughs> We're going to try. All right. So let's, let's get into this. Let's start out with some biology, some science. Austin is our resident Bill Nye the Science Guy. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about how this vaccine kind of works, uh, and 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 start with the base uh, biology here. Yeah. So some of this is uh, uh, material that if anybody's gone through a high school biology class or or certainly taken anything subsequent to that in college or postgraduate education, they'll be familiar with. But just to to review it for folks is all of our genetic material is uh, stored in these molecules called DNA, which sit in the very center of our cells in a spot called the nucleus. And these genes, they code for proteins. They're kind of the instruction manual for how to build a human, <laughs> all the different parts of us, all the different things that, that, uh, that kind of uh, uh, execute all of our normal bodily functions. In order to make this happen, Basically, that code that's in the DNA has to be transcribed. And when I say transcribed, it's almost like if you're looking at a recipe book and you're copying down a given recipe out of the book onto a scratch piece of paper. And then you go and you take that piece of paper and you make the recipe. So this process uh, is where DNA is transcribed. It's turned into something called uh, RNA, which is just a different kind of genetic mo uh, molecule, which leaves that center of the cell. It leaves the nucleus where it is then translated into a protein, which is kind of the ultimate result of this whole process. This is known as the central dogma of molecular biology. Um, and for the most part, this is how things work. There are a few rare exceptions to this kind of sequence, but for the most part, DNA gets turned into RNA, RNA gets uh, uh, turned into protein. 
And so this is kind of the process that we are taking advantage of when we develop and administer this vaccine. So DNA, that that original uh, genetic material, it lives inside the nucleus in the very center of our cells. It's super stable. Um, it contains all of our genes um, in every cell. Uh, and, and that's what it's there uh, for as like the central store of recipes. Um, the difference between DNA and RNA, there's some slight chemical differences between the two that we don't necessarily need to get into, but the result of those differences is significant differences in the stability of the molecules. Um, and so RNA, that little scratch paper transcript of the, the recipe that was contained in the DNA that leaves the nucleus, but that single strand of RNA is pretty unstable. If it comes into contact with a bunch of water, a bunch of heat, uh, even at room temperature, if it's agitated um, or just with a little bit of time after it's utilized in the cell, it gets broken down pretty readily. Uh, and, our, and our bodies also have these enzymes um, called RNases that are constantly chewing up RNA molecules so that they don't kind of accumulate and pile up and, and the, the, the um, building blocks of it can, can get recycled. Um, so this is an important concept that we'll come back to, the fact that RNA, and that's again what this vaccine is kind of created from, is super transient, super short-lived, uh, and very unstable. And that has some implications for how it is developed and and transported and stored and, and ultimately uh, administered. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's just, yeah, that to use your cookbook analogy, the DNA is a cookbook. It's solid. You know, it's going to be there for a while, even if you you know, splatter some oil on it or, you know, get some sauce that you're trying to make on it, it's going to be there. The code, the genetic code is still there. Rather, that scratch piece of paper could go missing in an instant, which is RNA. It's very transient. Uh, it might end up in your pocket, unsure. <laughs> it might end up in the trash can. Uh, and yeah, it's just a less uh, robust, less uh, sort of uh, a shorter lasting sort of molecule. So yeah. in any case, this vaccine is made of mRNA. Uh, what's, what's it targeting though? Like what, what is the protein that it's trying to make the cells make? Yeah. So, so RNA, again, these are transcripts that code for particular proteins to be made. And so the cool thing was that back in by February or so of, of this past year, um, the viral genome, all the genetic kind of material of the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus had already been sequenced. So we knew kind of what the cookbook looked like for this particular virus. And we knew that it was comprised of 29 different viral proteins. And one of these proteins, which is known as the spike protein on the surface of this virus, is important for the virus to be able to gain access to our cells and start doing its thing. And so basically what they decided to do was they said, if we can isolate and uh, the sequence, the, the kind of the recipe for this spike protein, then we can basically teach our own cells how to make it. And by making it, our, our cells can learn what it looks like. And once our immune system learns what something looks like, that's how we develop the kind of immunological memory and antibodies and things like that so that we can more rapidly kill it if we come in contact with that, uh, with that uh, foreign thing in the future. So the vaccine, by nature of it being an RNA kind of transcript for that particular protein, again, it is only for that particular protein, none of the other viral proteins, uh, this vaccine does not contain any actual virus or any part of a virus. It's just a recipe for our cells to make that one tiny harmless piece of the virus that doesn't do anything on its own. And uh, once we get exposed to that protein, it basically serves as target practice for our own immune system. 
uh, our immune system will learn what it looks like, prepares for it, and ideally will develop uh, what's known as immunological memory. Um, you know, the first time we come across something, it can take us up to two weeks to kind of go through this whole process of uh, kind of uh, ramping up our, our forces to be able to defend against something fully. But once we've gone through that once, when we have this memory in place, then as a result, should we come across something again in the future, then we can much more rapidly uh, uh, build up our response. And that's what can serve to mitigate the risk of severe illness or prevent illness or prevent infection altogether. Cool. Yeah. So effectively, it's like we're trying to call the cavalry earlier so that if we need to wage war, we're ready to go rather than being caught flat footed and having to do it from scratch. Yeah. And, and where it takes much longer. And because it takes much longer, uh, we, we don't generate as robust of a defense early on, thereby allowing the virus to cause COVID-19 syndrome, which is where you get symptomatic infection, which uh, is no good, as we're being told. Yeah, exactly. So this, this vaccine, um, the way it was put together, it contains just a few basic components because everybody always is going to be very concerned about all the ingredients that go into it. And this is something that's been scrutinized quite a bit in, for, with prior vaccines. So I think it's worth addressing because we even got some questions on that. So this vaccine basically contains four ingredients. The first is the messenger RNA template. The, again, the scratch piece of paper with the copy of the recipe for that one spike protein. Um, some of the, the little pieces of the RNA have been modified slightly just to improve their stability. Uh, but otherwise, it's basically an RNA molecule very similar to those that are in our own body. That's one thing. Um, however, uh, the other challenge in administering a piece of RNA is, to somebody is we have to be able to get it into their cells because all the machinery to turn that recipe into an actual protein are inside of our cells. So in order to facilitate that happening, they have cleverly uh, come up with this lipid, what they call a lipid nanoparticle. It's basically just a fatty bubble. And this fatty bubble will contain the RNA because all of our cells are basically fatty bubbles. Um, the, 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 our cell membranes are all made up of lipids, fats. And so this lipid bubble that contains the RNA will fuse with our cells and the RNA will kind of get dumped into the cell where it goes and does its thing. So that's the carrier um, that contains the RNA to deliver this genetic uh, transcript. Um, the other things that it contains are some salt and saline solution. That's, um, you know, how it uh, can be uh, designed to match our physiologic pH and to have it in solution. And then finally, some sugar, um, which is something that is added to protect against freezing since it needs to be maintained at very, very low temperature. So when you add solutes to a solution, you can alter the freezing point. And some of these things have been uh, added to uh, alter the freezing point of this so it does not freeze at the very low temperatures it needs to be maintained at. Uh, there are no preservatives, no metals, no other adjuvants that have been added to this. Um, again, not that most of those should be super concerning, but they raise concern for people. And so those uh, will point out are, are not contained in this. And so, again, these modifications, you know, things like the RNA modifications, the lipid nanoparticle, the very cold temperatures that people have heard about that this needs to be stored at, maintained at, transported at, et cetera. Those are all uh, done in order to render it more resistant to breakdown, um, to improve the stability of this RNA uh, transcript, this scratch piece paper to keep it nice and stable until it's able to be administered, get into our cells, generate an immune response. And then shortly thereafter, the RNA is broken down, degraded, and basically eliminated. So this is very cool because it is a vaccine that gets administered to the person. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, after it does its thing, it's basically gone. 
and it's not like detectable, <laughs> the vaccine itself, um, in that the RNA gets broken down. Um, so we're going to not, unlike certain other vaccines where they would give, um, they would administer a live attenuated or a weakened version of the virus or a killed version of the virus or deliver an antigen, a piece of the virus directly to people, which again works for many of these other things. Uh, this is uh, an altogether different strategy in that there's no no part of uh, a virus at all that's being given to people. It's just kind of a, an incomplete version of an instruction manual on how to make one piece of the virus. Yep. It should be pointed out, though, you know, so some of the other other vaccines, especially historically, used to contain like metals or other adjuvants to help not only pr- uh, the uh, stability of the vaccine itself, so that it could be like shipped worldwide, for example, for delivery to like other, either underserved countries or, you know, other uh, uh, places. So it'd be more stable for a longer period of time. Or in some cases, would it, it, it increase the immunogenicity of the vaccine, meaning like people would get a more robust immune response there by making it more uh, effective. Um, so like two of the ones that I'm thinking off the top of my head, like one is uh, thimerosal, which is a, a type of mercury and people when they learned that were like whoa 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 mercury no way don't want it and so in 1999 the fda said all right well we're going to remove it from all vaccines but there were unintended consequences of that a couple unintended consequences one certain vaccines became less potent and the supply of certain vaccines particularly to to, uh, uh underserved countries um was cut off so there was a large hepatitis outbreak, for example, in uh, some African countries because they did not get the hepatitis B vaccine because we were too busy removing the marisol from it. Same thing with aluminum. There used to be aluminum in some vaccines. And people, like again, when they think about it, like, oh, wow, aluminum, mercury, I don't want any of that in my vaccine. And it's like, well, the particular type of mercury that was in, that's in the marisol lasts, again, less than an instant. So it doesn't build up, doesn't cause toxicity. The aluminum is one of the most common elements in the Earth's crust. It's in everything. You consume aluminum every day. It's in breast milk. It's in all foods that you consume. You can't avoid it. The po- point is you're not getting a lot of it, and so it doesn't build up and doesn't cause toxicity. And the aluminum-related toxicities from vaccines were never reported. But we removed them anyway because of the public perception, and uh, that caused some unintended consequences. Now, we're not here to discuss that, but just to let you know, none of those are in this vaccine. So even if that was a concern for you, it shouldn't be a concern about this vaccine. Yep, agree. And and uh, this technology, as I said, is super, uh, you know, when I first uh, started reading more and more about this, you know, way earlier in the year, found it super interesting, very clever way to go about this. The technology has been studied and it's been in the works actually for a while. Um, it was uh, developed, well, part of it was developed during the 2003 SARS outbreak. And there's definitely been research into this going back further than that. Um, all that said, this is the first mRNA vaccine that's likely to be approved. But like I said, the technology has been being looked at and, and worked on for, for quite a while leading up to this. And that's part of how the process has been able to get ramped up uh, to the point of, uh, um, you know, pending approval very quickly over the course of this year. It's not like somebody just had this idea at the beginning of the year and start to finish. It's all happened now. This has been like decades in the making. Yep. Yeah. Since we already had this technology, this strategy available, it was like, huh. Let's see if this works. Yep. And uh, yeah, it did. So uh, the COVID-19 vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech uh, has been undergone thorough testing uh, over the past year. And phase one, two, and three studies are now complete. So that begs the question, you know, 
what are what's a phase one, two, or three trial. Uh, so in general, there are four major phases uh, when it comes to like drug development and drug approval. Uh, phase one <clears throat> is basically just there to test safety. It's usually a very small study. Uh, and there are usually different doses given to these subjects. Um, and the, the idea is to try to find the dose that uh, produces the fewest side effects. And uh, once that's identified and a, a significant amount of data has been collected, it uh, can pass uh, forward into phase two clinical trials. Phase two trial uh, still aims to test safety, but then also aims to test efficacy. So like, how does it do what it's set out to do? So usually larger sample sizes and uh, in this case, sometimes different candidates. So in this case, different actual vaccines or uh, different flavors of the vaccine, not like actual like flavor, how does it taste, but slight modifications to the vaccine are used to, again, identify what's the most efficacious agent with the best safety profile. And so once that's been identified and a substantial amount of data has been collected, it can move forward to the phase three clinical trial. And again, at each step of the way, it has to be approved to move to the next phase. It's not like the scientists just you know, somewhere in the back of a lab go, yeah, we're good. And then you get to enter phase two. Now there's a, um, there's regulation at every phase in order to progress forward. So after phase two clinical trials comes phase three, which is the one that just got completed for, uh, this vaccine candidate, um, larger, even larger than phase two, uh, uh, sample size. So you got way more people being exposed to it. And the main function of this phase uh, of a clinical trial is to compare the efficacy of the uh, drug or vaccine target, in this case, to the standard of care while continuing to assess safety, the safety profile. So in this case, there was no standard of care because there, you know, there were no medications or other vaccine tar uh, uh, candidates that were currently being used. And so that's why it was compared to a placebo. But in other drug development trials, this is when you're comparing it to either to another medication or a series of different medications to see like, hey, does this new drug actually do what uh, you say it does. Um, and then once it's past phase three clinical trials, the FDA can weigh in and say, yeah, you're authorized or approved to bring this drug to market. Or in this case, uh, issue an emergency use authorization, uh, which we'll talk about shortly. But the idea is that they're issuing that EUA, emergency use authorization, um, because there's something bad going on. We have no alternative treatments and uh, we need to kind of uh, speed up the process here while still continuing to uh, assess the safety and efficacy going forward. Uh, and that leads us to phase four. So phase four is basically post-marketing surveillance. Once the uh, drug, or in this case a vaccine, has been brought to market, you're still following people, people get the vaccine and seeing how they do, assessing safety, assessing efficacy, et cetera. That's why, you know, when you hear about uh, certain medications that have been pulled from the market, that's due to the phase four clinical trial. Uh, effectively following folks who are getting the medication um, and uh, and seeing how they do. So those, that's the overview of the different phases. Um, but the EUA that was issued um, basically occurred after the phase three trial. Now, there's been some discussion about like, again, this thing being rushed or not being held to the same quote unquote standard that other vaccines are, which is certainly not the case here. Uh, Austin, you've, I think, done some reading you know, on the history of vaccine development and, and kind of what the standard is. And I, for all intents and purposes, it's being held to the same standard that other vaccines have been held to. Is that 
uh, yes. pretty accurate. Yes, I would say that's accurate. I mean, you've gotten through these phase three trials, uh, oh, the phase three trial for this particular one and the other vaccine candidates, again, from the other companies that we mentioned earlier, um, are either in their phase three trials or they're, you know, early on setting those phase three trials up. And so, you know, and, and the other interesting thing here to mention is you mentioned the emergency use authorization, which we expect is going to be given for this particular vaccine, you know, within the next few days. We're recording on Friday, uh, uh, the uh, 11th of December right now. Um, but there were there have been prior emergency use authorizations that have been given for other treatments for COVID earlier in the pandemic. So one was for hydroxychloroquine. And that EUA was given on far less evidence um, of benefit uh, because uh, hydroxychloroquine doesn't actually work. It was the EUA was given in the absence of randomized controlled trials. It was given um, based on relatively poor uh, evidence that we had. And so once everybody realized, oh, yeah, this uh, hydroxychloroquine doesn't actually do anything for prevention or treatment of, of, of COVID, then that was uh, stopped. And, you know, we're not using that. Similarly, a convalescent plasma also got an EUA. Um, for treatment. Convalescent plasma is basically you taking the serum from people who have recovered from COVID infection and you isolate their antibodies and you give them to other people who are actively dealing with COVID infection. Um, and similarly, that was uh, that received an EUA on relatively little evidence. We certainly didn't have 40,000 uh, subject uh, randomized controlled trials of either of those things before they got the EUA. So um, it, as far as an EUA goes, this is getting a higher standard than either of the prior uh, uh, treatments have gotten for this. And then as far as approval goes, it is the same standard as other vaccines uh, uh, kind of have been held to. It's just that, again, the pooled brain power of the world, the pooled resources of the world have all been directed at this problem over the past year. Plus, the technology had been in place and it's been able to get ramped up very quickly uh, because of the pressure, because of the resources, all this stuff. We can answer questions a lot quicker when we actually, you know, work together on stuff, which is pretty cool. Yep. I would have been curious to see a similar AP poll about like who would have taken hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I don't think that you'd have half of the population say, nah. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but, but again, as you pointed out, the EUA given for, for that and convalescent plasma is based on uh, effectively no data. Um, just the existing data on a safety profiles of, of, of both things, um, but rather no data on efficacy. Right. So yeah, th you could, you could make the argument, this is being held to a much higher standard and we have much better quality uh, data. In addition to the quality of the data, it's much more robust. We just have more data points. Um, and, and, you know, to be clear, it's not that again, after the phase three clinical trial that just got completed, it's not like people are just wiping their hands of this and, and moving on the phase four trial for this vaccine. There are already two studies planned for this. One is being done in the department of defense and the other one's being done on uh, the veterans affair uh, data set. So effectively they're going to follow both of those groups of people for 30 months and look for adverse events. And then also uh, a case control study, basically people who get the uh, infection who basically who get uh, SARS-CoV-2 and then develop the COVID-19 syndrome. Um, how many of those folks got had the vaccine versus, versus didn't? So, so you get to keep assessing the efficacy and the safety again for 30 months, almost three full years after, you know, after administration in, in what we expect to be two very large data sets, uh, which again is promising. That's good. We want that. We want to find out like this vaccine have, you know, a lot of data on this vaccine. Um, and it looks like we're, we're trending that way. 
Yeah. And, and I understand, you know, obviously people's concerns about safety and there's a lot of question about long-term effects and we'll, we'll get to more of that a little bit later. But the other thing is to keep in mind is that, you know, the supply of this is still going to be relatively limited up front. And so, you know, maybe people have probably heard who the initial populations are that are going to be receiving this. Um, I myself am going to be among those as a, you know, healthcare professional is dealing with uh, treating COVID patients directly. And so there will be many more months worth of safety data accumulated by the time uh, this vaccine makes it to kind of the general population that we anticipate in the spring. And so I wouldn't be surprised, you know, you mentioned the Department of Defense uh, uh, kind of um, uh, study as far as post-marketing surveillance. And I would not be surprised if I were a part of that by nature of uh, where I work. So, yeah, hopefully your data is de-identified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's take a peek here at this phase three clinical trial. We've linked the actual study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. We've linked that study in the description. So if you're curious to read it, you can check that out. Uh, Austin, take us through the uh, nuts and bolts of the study. Yeah. So basically, this study was of a bit over 40,000, 43 some thousand participants uh, um, aged over 16 years. Uh, I think they started out at over 18 and it was uh, maybe expanded a little bit a little bit later. And these patients were or subjects were randomized to receive either the vaccine series, which involved two doses three weeks apart or getting placebo. Same deal, though, two doses of placebo three weeks apart. So it was effectively, you know, the same kind of ritual that everybody went through. Uh, as far as who was excluded from this study, they excluded folks who had known previous symptomatic COVID infection. They excluded individuals with uh, immunosuppressing conditions. Uh, they excluded those who were currently using medicines to prevent COVID, again, prevent in, in quotes. So people who were like currently taking hydroxychloroquine or something like that, even though it doesn't prevent COVID. They excluded those patients from the study. And then uh, as is typical for an initial phase three trial, they excluded individuals who were pregnant or breastfeeding, um, which is not due to any specific concern outside of uh, it's what we usually do in the first phase three trial. Um, the subjects were fairly evenly split as far as sex uh, went. There were about almost 49% female, about 51% uh, male. Mean age was around 50 years old. Uh, about 17% of the subjects were non-white, uh, a third of subjects had a BMI over 30, and about half of them had some medical comorbidity, which is important because, you know, we're definitely recognizing that those who have elevated BMI, those who have uh, uh, medical comorbidities are at higher risk of having, you know, worse outcomes if they do experience the infection. Yep. That, and it's, it's important to realize that that sort of rundown is basically representative of the U.S. population when you're talking about like age, uh, ethnic background, BMI, folks with medical comorbidities. I mean, it's not exact, but it's it's pretty close. You wouldn't want, for example, only men or and only young people or and only folks with BMI, you know, normal BMIs or only white folks. You know, you, you want a, a, a cross-section of the population. And that's pretty much what they achieved here, which is, again, impressive. Yeah. And this was also, just to be clear, this was across a couple countries. So it wasn't even, it wasn't restricted to the, to the U.S. So. Yeah. I think they were in like Turkey, Brazil, the United States, a handful of other countries. But yeah, the important part is that it's a diverse group of folks that they were looking at and not just like one population. Yep. Cool. So uh, how the, uh, what were they actually looking at with respect to efficacy? What does that even mean in this case? Yeah. So basically when you want to figure out how well does this thing work, you have to define what outcome you're looking at. Uh, and so there's a few different ways that you can look at vaccine efficacy. So for example, you can look at 
does it have efficacy to prevent infection? Um, you know, regardless of any symptoms, regardless of anything else, just the fact that somebody got infected, even if they had no symptoms, does it, uh, is it able to prevent that? Um, one way that you could test that is looking for evidence of, uh, you know, pre and post kind of like antibodies in the blood, regardless of if they ever had uh, any symptoms. Another thing that you could look at would be efficacy to prevent disease, which would be looking at, did they have infection plus symptoms? Um, and then finally, you could look at, does it have efficacy to prevent severe disease? So that would be like severe symptoms, critical illness, as well as uh, kind of uh, serologic or PCR evidence of infection. So there's a few different ways that you can look at how effective this is because you'd want to know, does it just prevent severe illness? Does it prevent any illness? Does it just prevent infection or does it, you know, uh, or, or does it reduce the risk of having bad symptoms, but you can still get infected and transmit? These are all things that we'd want to be able to figure out. So the endpoint in this particular study was just COVID disease, which was defined as having a positive uh, a PCR test within four days of having those typical symptoms, fevers, chills, you know, cough, shortness of breath, muscle aches, pains, vomiting, diarrhea, et cetera, which would be reflective of having a symptomatic, you know, acute infection. Um, there was a secondary, uh, there's secondary analysis done for more severe uh, disease. So that would have be, you know, if your oxygen level dropped, if you had fat, rapid heart rate, if you went into shock, you had multiple organ failure, you got admitted to the ICU or you died. Uh, that was a kind of a secondary uh, uh, endpoint in the study. And so when they actually looked at how people did on this, the efficacy to prevent disease, again, symptoms plus positive, you know, uh, objective evidence of infection was apparent within the first two, was uh, around the 10 to 14 day mark, we started to see evidence of benefit. It was equivalent across uh, the age spectrum. Um, the evidence of benefit improved, uh, uh, was apparent after one dose, but after you get your second dose, uh, it uh, became apparent that there was about 95% of uh, efficacy of this vaccine to prevent uh, uh, disease. Again, symptoms plus objective evidence of infection. Um, and so that's kind of, that's a pretty impressive uh, result. That's about as high as we've seen from these vaccine candidates. There were a couple of the 95% range and a, and, and a handful of others that have been a bit lower than that. Um, so quite good. And, and the graph is striking. Uh, and, and the graph is one that I shared kind of on social media when I, uh, when I posted a bit about this to educate some folks. And that's about as good as you can get as far as vaccine efficacy uh, goes to prevent disease. Yeah. Uh, what, was, what was your the response like for posting that graph? Uh, the overwhelming majority was positive, And then there was a small fraction of crazies, as I would expect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like the normal response. <laughs> and, and, and I think that was partially just due to, you know, our selection bias of, of our audience. If, if I was, uh, if I was, you know, running around in different circles, then I would get uh, probably a different uh, spectrum of response there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So it, it looked like that after the first dose, there was something around like an 80% efficacy. And then after the second dose that jumped up to 95%. So a definite, definite benefit to getting the second dose. Um, but how many COVID cases? So the symptomatic infection were actually in each group. Uh, so about eight in those who were randomized to get the vaccine and about 160 in those who got the placebo, um, which was notable in the difference, obviously. But overall, if you look at the num total numbers of infections, the absolute infection rate in the study was pretty low. It, it was actually a bit lower than you would expect compared to the general population. Um, and so, you know, there's some discussion around that as far as is that an artifact of kind of the, the population sampling people who may have volunteered for this study or maybe highly motivated health conscious people who may have been doing other things to reduce the risk of infection as well. Um, and and the, the consequence of that if that were the case, would be that in the general population, 
then maybe the the effectiveness when it came to real world application of this may not be quite as high as 95%. Um, but that's kind of all theoretical uh, discussion and thought process. And we'll just kind of have to see what happens once we do more uh, of the general population uh, uh, studies here. Uh, but overall, again, uh, all it takes is taking a look at that that graph and these numbers to see the striking kind of fork as far as the, the, the difference between groups that got placebo and, and who actually got the vaccine as far as risk of developing disease. Yeah. So what's the real point of getting the second dose? Because, you know, if you're getting 80%, yeah. See, after the first dose. Yeah. So, so I've seen that number of around 80% thrown around for the first dose. However, the caveat is the study wasn't actually designed to, to look at the efficacy of a single dose regimen because all the people in the study actually got the second dose. So if you wanted to see F- efficacy of a single dose regimen, you'd have to just give people one dose and follow them out longer. Um, so uh, I was, I'd be cautious about claiming that number as far as efficacy for the, for the first dose. However, uh, we know that there was some benefit from the first dose. The, the issue with single dose in this, partic- in, in this context and, and in many other uh, vaccines that require periodic boosters is that the first dose of a vaccine typically generates lower levels of antibodies in the blood lower affinity antibodies, which means they have less of a, 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 a tight uh, a fit with the antigen that they're trying to bind up. They don't, they don't uh, hook up to it quite as tightly, uh, which is important for a, for a potent kind of killing response. And they're shorter lived. So lower levels, lower affinity, and sh- shorter lived antibody responses that you get from a single dose. Whereas once you get the second dose, you can get high affinity antibodies. Uh, you can get higher levels of antibodies, a bit longer term antibody responses. And so that's why you might see vaccines, including this one, that might require multiple doses or even periodic boosters in, in other uh, uh, contexts. And then the other important thing here is over the follow-up period of the study, there wasn't evidence of like waning protection where you saw the group that got the vaccine, their infection rate didn't start to climb back up like a couple months in, which, you know, you might expect if the uh, kind of protection that you got from it wore off. Um, so there wasn't evidence of waning protection. So it seemed to be persistent, at least over the course of the study period. If I had to guess, it's going to be much longer than, than the study period, uh, uh, probably quite a while if I had to guess. But that's, again, why we're going to be continuing to follow these people. Yeah. It's basically like every time you get a booster or like a second dose of a vaccine, it's basically like training the Calvary to be a little bit better, a little more efficient uh, at, at killing the virus or ki- and preventing disease. And so, you know, this happens all the time in other vaccine uh, uh, schedules. So like a Tdap, a TDAP booster, your, your tetanus booster shot. Um, ha- this is not new um, that additional doses um, are required to again train up your your immune system um, so that it can it can work a little bit more efficiently. Uh, now, obviously, there was a huge case difference between the placebo arm; they got 162 cases, whereas the those who got the vaccine had eight cases. But uh, what about some of the secondary outcomes? What about like uh, like death? How how did uh, the placebo arm do compared to the COVID nineteen arm? Yeah, so six people in the study uh, uh, died out of again almost forty four thousand. So so that's pretty good. <laughs> but again, this was because it's relatively short term. There were four deaths in the placebo group. One was attributed to a heart attack, one to a stroke, and two were unknown. Um, and two deaths were in the vaccine group. One was supp- supposedly attributed to arteriosclerosis, which. I don't necessarily view as a cause of death, not a cause um, of death. So I'm not, I'm not exactly clear on what they meant by that, unless they also had some sort of a, you know, atherosclerotic event, heart attack, stroke, something like that. And another one died due to a heart attack, neither of which were deemed to be directly attributable to the vaccine, just because it's not really plausible. Um, 
so there was heart attack in, in both placebo and vaccine group and then these other ones. So, so not, not too many died. Um, the overall rate of like severe COVID and, and uh, uh, you know, ICU admission and, and death and things like that were relatively low. And so a bit too soon to draw very strong conclusions on that front, but it appears to, the vaccine appears to have some protective effects there as well. Um, and that's, again, part of why more data is going to need to continue to be collected on that front. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you, you see the striking difference in COVID-19, symptomatic COVID-19 infections, um, and you extrapolate that out, you would expect more, uh, death prevention, mortality prevention, you'd expect more prevention of ICU admission, more prevention of other serious sort of sequelae to a symptomatic COVID-19 infection. But because we have four months of follow-up, it's really hard to confidently say, yeah, it does this, this, and this. Sometimes our best laid plans, you know, come unraveled when you follow these things a longer period. But as far as preventing the actual infection uh, and symptomatic infection, especially of uh, COVID-19, well, seems to be good. Now, the people who are listening to this podcast are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what about the adverse effects? So let's let's talk about that. What was what were the most common sort of adverse effects of the uh, of the vaccine? Yeah. So the, the the preface to this is that most quote unquote adverse effects are not what I actually consider to be adverse effects. And I don't frame them that way. I don't talk about them that way. You know, bad effects, side effects, adverse effects. They're reflective of this phenomenon called reactogenicity, which is a fancy word for basically just describing how your immune system kind of ramps up in response to exposure to some sort of foreign thing. And so these are the typical symptoms that we see in a lot of vaccine trials, as well as the symptoms that you might experience when your immune system does ramp up in response to something. Uh, You might have some fevers, might have some muscle aches, pains, headaches, fatigue, uh, uh, things like that are all extremely common in general. Um, And they actually occurred in this study in both the vaccine and in the placebo group. Plenty of people in the placebo arm reported all all of these symptoms, again, because either these are just common things that people experience or a nocebo type phenomenon or whatever the case is. But the way I look at it is I try to reframe the the meaning of these symptoms, kind of like how we talk a lot about in the context of people experiencing pain, experiencing back pain, experiencing things like that, where we try to get people to not think about it as like, oh, that means I'm damaging myself. It means something else. And I can do this about it here. I want to reframe the meaning of these kind of common symptoms that people have, aches, pains, fevers, headaches, things like that after getting a, a, a vaccination, reframe them away from being a bad thing or feeling sick, and instead being a good thing that reflects that, hey, my immune system is ramping up. This is exactly what I want to happen. Uh, and, and part of the reason why it's really important to do this is because those kinds of side effects are things that can limit either vaccine uptake altogether, me- meaning it might make people less likely to take it, or it might make people less likely to come back and get the second dose, which is super important to get that highest level of efficacy that we can get. Um, So I wouldn't want necessarily somebody to get one dose and then to feel bad and to say, oh, this vaccine gave me COVID because A, that's impossible. Or the way that they're thinking about the meaning of these symptoms, this made me sick. I don't want to do that again. Rather, it's like, these are good things that are reflecting the fact that your body is doing what it's supposed to in response to this kind of immune challenge. Um, And so I will say that these Typical kind of reactogenic symptoms were more common with this uh, with this particular vaccine compared to uh, the flu shot, but they are actually less common. Uh, uh, there were fewer side of, 
you know, these kind of symptoms that people experience, they're less common with this vaccine compared to the shingles vaccine. So there's like a spectrum of these things as far as how frequently they happen. And again, I'd point out that a f- substantial fraction of people in the placebo arm also experienced a lot of these symptoms. Yeah. Like that site soreness or, or something like that. It yep. happens yep. frequently. And yep. You would expect similar rates between the placebo and the uh, COVID-19 vaccine arm. If uh, there was nothing in the vaccine arm that uniquely caused that. And uh, that's what we see. Now, there were a few, quote unquote, serious adverse effects, and you guys are going to read about these, hear about these, and so I wanted to address them. Um, so one was appendicitis, which is effectively uh, when your appendix, you, usually it becomes obstructed and uh, needs to be removed. Uh, sometimes you can treat it with antibiotics. That's a whole nother podcast. We'll save that for our <laughs> surgical fellow. <laughs> we, can, uh, we can wait on that. Uh, in any case, appendicitis was actually the most common serious adverse effect in the vaccine arm. Now, there were 12 total cases of appendicitis, eight occurred in the vaccine arm, four occurred in the placebo arm. And so if you take that just at face value, you're like, so you're saying that getting the COVID-19 vaccine uh, may increase my risk of developing appendicitis? Well, what you have to then do is look at what is the normal incidence, what is the normal rate at which appendicitis occurs in the population? Uh, And so that's 1.1% cases per thousand people per year. And so if you do a little bit of math, you would actually expect about 12 cases in 44,000 people, the size of the study in three to four months, which is how long the study uh, actually went on for. And so that's exactly what you see, 12 total cases. So no significant difference between uh, cases in the vaccine arm and the placebo arm uh, as compared to the general population. So It doesn't really look like the COVID-19 vaccine causes appendicitis, but rather sometimes it do be like that with respect to appendicitis. (laughs) Uh, The other thing that you're going to hear about is Bell's palsy. There were four cases of Bell's palsy in the vaccine arm and zero in the placebo arm. So again, if you just take that at face value, you might think, wow, getting the COVID-19 vaccine may increase my risk of developing a Bell's palsy. However, you got to look at what is the normal incidence in the population. And it's about 15 to 30 cases per 100,000 people per year. And so again, you do a little bit of math, you would expect about four cases of Bell's palsy in a sample of 44,000 individuals followed up over three to four months, which is exactly what we see. So no real difference in these in the incidence of either of these two diseases uh, compared to the general population. And, and so the way I interpret this is based on the incidence rate in the general population, it doesn't look like the vaccine or the placebo actually increases the risk of either of these things. Now, could that change over time based on new data? Sure. But based on this very large sample size over four months, it doesn't look like that's the case. But, uh, you know, that's why we got to keep following these things up. And that's why those two studies are planned to follow folks for 30 months to see like, hey, are there any serious adverse events that occur at a greater rate than what occurs in the general population? Because as of right now, we don't see any, which is good. Yep. Yeah, I agree. The the other uh, kind of consequence, side effect, adverse effect that people have been that's that's come up, especially since the UK started, is that there were some uh, reportedly uh, severe allergic reactions that happened among a few patients in the UK. And uh, from my understanding of the situation, these are all individuals who had a history of, of very severe uh, uh, kind of allergic reactions to other things. They were the kind of folks who need to carry around an EpiPen all the time. 
And so there's been some discussion uh, and I expect to, you know, there'll be some more formal, formalized kind of guidance from, from our side of the pond as far as um, uh, excluding people in the short term who have a history of severe allergic reactions versus not versus close monitoring versus, you know, whatever. We'll see. Um, some of the thinking is that um, that some components of the lipid nanoparticle may be more likely to cause some of these things. I don't think we have all of that kind of teased out quite yet. And so if somebody has not like they have seasonal allergies um, or something like that, but rather like they've had anaphylaxis to something before, then that's something where you'd want to talk to the person who is, you know, in charge of uh, administering you or offering you the vaccine to see if, uh, you know, what the current guidance is whenever uh, it may be offered to you. Uh, and hopefully, again, by the time this gets to the general population, where people are in a position to make these decisions a few months from now, this will have been answered much more confidently by then. And this podcast will be outdated by then. Yep. Yep, that happens. It, it, we'll basically see, like, is there some unique allergic risk in folks who don't have a history of anaphylaxis and those types of allergies? And if that's the case, well, we're going to have to shift course. But it doesn't look like that based on this large phase three clinical trial. Uh, but rather, if you have a history of anaphylaxis, well... Talk to somebody about that. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. The biggest issue is that it, you know, it looks like a lot of people are going to get this vaccine. So statistically speaking people are going to experience medical issues shortly after the vaccination just due to the number of people who are going to be vaccinated. So you're going to have all sorts of things that happen, heart attacks, strokes, diagnosis of new autoimmune diseases, cancer, et cetera. But these things all happen anyway. And so people are going to make this like, you know, post hoc ergo propter error and say, well, I got the vaccine and then I had a heart attack. So the vaccine causes a heart attack. It's like, well, statistically speaking, it's more likely that this was going to happen anyway. Um, and that's kind of what we talked about in the appendicitis and the Bell's palsy cases. Um, and so that's something that's happened in all vaccines that we've been administering for, for years. People will get the vaccine and then something, you know, unfortunate happens afterwards and people go, see, the vaccine did that. I saw it. That's literally the whole autism story. <laughs> yes. Well, the yes, not so much not not so much to do with the paper uh, that was published by Wakefield, but yes, the, that's, the assumption of causality, and then when we do all the studies looking at causality, we find no evidence of it. And so, yeah, yeah. people, people, we're just very good at pattern recognition and and drawing causal assumptions, which is the whole point of doing controlled trials, so you can more confidently tease apart was something causal? Was it just correlated and, and unrelated, which, you know, is, is why having a placebo group is so critically important and following them, um, after they, after they, uh, receive their, their doses. Uh, well, speaking of which that gets us into a little bit of a sticky kind of subject. Should the people in this phase three clinical trial who got the placebo be unblinded Meaning that you tell them, hey, you actually you actually got the placebo, so you, you're going to want to get vaccinated, uh, thereby kind of destroying the information that we would be able to collect on that placebo arm going forward. Uh, it's an ethical, you know, issue, a, a, certainly a problem. Austin, uh, what, do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, I agree. It's a sticky situation. It's something that uh, we discussed in in previous days. Mike talked to me about it, and again, I think it I think it comes back to what kind of questions do you want to try to answer? The population, the people out there who are going to be considering this, if there is this very strong demand of we need to know long-term effects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then 
the only way you can actually adequately answer that question is to keep running this trial out and following people longer in their in their original kind of treatment arms. Um, to the extent that you unblind and allow crossover and things like that, then it's going to limit your ability to answer some of those questions. And I'm not necessarily saying that one or the other is the right decision, but ultimately it comes down to what kind of questions are we uh, kind of prioritizing the most. If we're prioritizing, does this vaccine work to prevent, you know, uh, COVID disease, then that question has basically been answered, um, by the data that we have so far reasonably confidently. And so from that standpoint, sure, let them all cross over. Um, but then again, if you want to say, you know, longer term stuff, then once you let everybody cross over, and you let everybody get the vaccine. And then, you know, months later, somebody develops some condition and you want to know, is this happening at a higher rate because of the vaccine or, you know, in the group that got it compared to those who didn't, you're not going to be able to answer that anymore. So that's kind of the ethical kind of uh, dilemma, the ethical situation that you're in. I suppose um, if you were a subject in the study, then there's probably nothing stopping you from going out on your own and getting a serology test done to see if you have antibodies. And if you don't, then you can figure this out for yourself. But I don't, I don't really envision a lot of people doing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are other ways to try to answer that question. So for example, you could do a cohort study uh, where basically you look at two different groups of in, uh, individuals, one group who got vaccinated and one group who's not vaccinated and try to tease out answers to that question. The problem is that data set is not as perfect, not as high quality as this randomized controlled trial where everybody's blinded to what they to what they got. So yeah, if you compared people, like, yeah, because what you're suggesting in a, in a prospective cohort study for this, it would be something like you take a bunch of people who got it and then work for convenience you collect a bunch of people who did not want to get the vaccine and you followed those two groups forward in parallel uh, and you looked for differences between them. And you might be able to say that some differences that happen are due to getting the vaccine or not. On the other hand, anytime you do that kind of a study, there may be differences due to the kinds of people who say they don't want to get the vaccine that may be kind of confounding your, your picture. Um, and so that's kind of why prospective blinded trials in the kind of pharmacologic biomedical context are more useful to answer those kind of questions compared to some of these other uh, observational type uh, uh, data sets. Yeah. I think it's easy to say something like the value of the data has to justify the risks and then you got to kind of weigh that out. Yep. But I don't have the answer. Uh, if you want to read more on that, we linked a paper by Wendler at Al. Uh, it's in the description below. No, not that Wendler, but <laughs> a, diff, a different one. And so you guys, you can check out the ethical dilemma here and kind of some uh, ponderings on that. Now, so at, that's basically the phase three clinical trial in a nutshell. Wrap that up. Uh, and after this, you know, they were able, the Pfizer and BioNTech were able to file for this emergency use authorization. They filed for that in late December. It was like the 20th. And uh, so just briefly, the emergency use authorization um, is administered due to uh, COVID-19 being a public health emergency. And basically, the FDA can issue one of these things uh, if the following criteria are met. So for example, is SARS-CoV-2 does it cause serious or life-threatening disease? Check. Uh, based on the totality of the evidence, is it reasonable to believe that the product that they're filing an EUA for uh, may effectively prevent, mitigate, diagnose, or treat SARS-CoV-2? Check. Uh, do the known potential benefits outweigh the known potential risks? Check. And there's no adequate alternative. Also check. So it meets all of these criteria. It hasn't yet been approved. 
but uh, as of the recording of this podcast, but uh, we expect that to happen within the next few days. And then there'll be a rollout of this vaccine to the first phase or first tier, uh, first group of folks. Um, so probably frontline uh, healthcare workers and uh, individuals in uh, nursing homes. So we'll see. Uh, that being said, even after the EUA is is given, the product is not still is not yet considered approved by the FDA, quote unquote. So it's still uh, an investigational new drug until it's licensed, um, which occurs based on the continued review of data on the manufacturing. Um, uh, processes, the efficacy, safety, etc. So the phase four trials will continue, um, which basically the continued follow-up of the phase three clinical trials, right, that post-marketing surveillance and the additional studies that are planned in the Department of Defense and the Veterans Affair uh, data sets that we talked about earlier. Okay, moving on. Who is this vaccine actually for? Like who's, who's going to get it, Austin? Everybody gets it. Some people get it. What's the deal? Yeah, so that's that was a, an active area of debate among the committee that were uh, voting on this in the past few days. And so basically, it's going to be a two-dose regimen given three weeks apart. Um, it's very likely to be approved for adults age 18 and up. And I think some of the discussion was around the 16 to 18 age group. And I feel like that's probably likely to be approved as well um, for for this uh, broad range of, of individuals to receive the uh, to receive the vaccine. Yeah, but what about like children? So there were not children included in the original study. And so that's a situation where, you know, the typical approach in biomedicine is if uh, a treatment is not studied in a given group, then you don't necessarily approve it to be given to that group until you have more solid data uh, uh, to do that. So I don't anticipate it's going to be improved there until we get more uh, data on uh, pediatric uh, populations. Yeah. And that's the same sort of thinking that transfers over to pregnant and lactating individuals or an immunocompromised individuals. So effectively, since we didn't study it in those individuals, can't yet recommend its use until that study has actually been done, uh, particularly for safety and then subsequently for efficacy. So there's going to be continued clinical trials going on um, to assess that. Um, as far as if you should get it after you've already had a symptomatic COVID-19 infection or even asymptomatic yeah, so there's some interesting discussion on this. Um, early on in the pandemic, there were a lot of antibody studies. Some people may have paid attention to this, kind of like the serological surveys and things like that, basically doing blood tests on people in areas to see how often uh, or the frequency of, of uh, COVID infection. And what they found in a lot of these studies was a huge range um, in terms of how much antibody production there was across people in these uh, in, in these surveys, um, like on the order of 200 fold differences in terms of antibody production between people um, who who had the infection. And the the thought process and the findings were suggested that those who had milder disease, who had milder symptoms, maybe had a little fever, maybe a little cough, maybe even less than that. They may have had a weaker immune response uh, to that infection. It might that may have been a result of them maybe getting exposed to a relatively small amount of virus, for example. If if everybody around them was masked and they got exposed to less, and they had as a result lower immune response, they would have maybe a lower antibody response, ultimately weaker kind of uh, immunity from it compared to those who got exposed maybe to a higher dose of, of, uh, of virus who had more severe disease, more severe symptoms, may have developed uh, kind of stronger, quote unquote, immunity, higher antibody levels, things like that. Um, 
And that wide ranging, wide kind of spectrum of immune response to the infection raises some interesting kind of thoughts and, and ideas about this very question. Uh, because uh, the vaccines have been specifically designed to produce a strong immune reaction, and they've consistently shown the desired response. Whereas, again, there's not consistency in how much virus you get exposed to, and as a result, your kind of immune response to a given dose of virus if you get kind of naturally infected. So there's been discussion, people tend to assume that, oh, my immunity is going to be better if I get the natural infection compared to a vaccine. And, and actually, I think that that's less likely to be the case here. Um, there's one other little interesting tidbit that I came across for people who nerd out on immunology is that there's been findings of natural infection with this virus has been actually shown to cause uh, antibody development against our own interferon. Um, which is a, a component of our own immune system. So the nat natural infection generated a kind of a weakening of our own immune system, which is not something that would happen with the vaccine. Um, so a few different interesting aspects to this discussion, basically tying into this question, should I get it if I've already had COVID infection? I'll say that we don't have clear guidelines on that. We don't have a strong recommendation on it yet. But it is very plausible that somebody, particularly those who have had maybe super mild infection, maybe they had completely asymptomatic infection, minimal symptoms that may reflect a low kind of immune response to it, they may actually stand to benefit from getting a vaccine that was specifically designed to produce a strong immune reaction, generate stronger antibodies, uh, 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 higher antibody uh, uh, levels, more persistent antibody levels, higher affinity antibodies, et cetera. Um, I think that this is something, again, this is a December 2020 podcast, maybe uh, by spring 2020, we'll have more information on this. But this is kind of like where the thinking is, is right now. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a recommendation to just get the thing regardless, uh, uh, come down the pipe. Yeah, especially given that there's some data showing a reinfection with COVID-19, even at those who were symptomatic previously. I think that's probably likely, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Predicting the future, it's a fool's errand. I don't want to do it. So yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I imagine this is going to roll out for people 16 and up, um, and they're, we're likely going to withhold uh, the vaccine from populations we haven't studied it in. Um, but yeah, it's probably, probably going to be widespread. Uh, one problem that surfaces here is that it is a two-dose vaccine. And historically, multi-dose vaccines don't do very well with completing the vaccine schedule. So this is going to be an important um, sort of public health issue to tackle. Uh, so for example, uh, varicella, people get for chickenpox is two doses. Hepatitis A is two to three doses, depending on which vaccine you use. Same thing for uh, hepatitis B. Uh, so those who actually receive like the first dose of the varicella vaccination or hepatitis A only about 55 to 65% of those individuals actually complete the vaccine series. Uh, for hepatitis B, it's less than that, about, about half. And so it would be problematic if about half of folks who got the first COVID-19 vaccine did not get the second dose. Um, so I'll be curious to see how yeah. public health officials tackle this issue because, uh, his, again, historically, we haven't, haven't done so well. Yeah. And this, uh, this assumes like a, a, broad, a wide sort of uptake in the public. And right now, half of the population is like, eh, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. So if half the population abstains and the other half who gets it, if only half of them get the second dose, now we're talking about 25% of people walking around who are immune to this thing. And that's pretty far off that 70% sort of target for herd immunity, which uh, could be problematic. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Okay, so we covered 
the back the trial. We covered the vaccine. We covered how vaccines work. Talked about some other stuff. Now for frequently asked questions about this vaccine. So first up, Baraki, look, man, we just learned about this thing like 11 months ago. The vaccine process didn't start till maybe nine or 10 months ago. And now we have a vaccine. This seems uh, pretty rushed. What, what do you say to that? Yeah, I get. I can understand where that thought process is coming from, and I and I think ultimately it is. It it comes from a place of genuine concern, but also one that is that lacks familiarity with the process and how it compares to um, you know previous vaccines. And so I included this just to reiterate, even though we already went through it, but like absolutely massive amounts of resources and and attention and like human brain power were all poured into this. And anytime we do something like that, we can accomplish pretty remarkable things. The technology is not new. It's been around for a while. And so as a result of that, uh, you know, the, the, the pieces were in place for this from early on. Again, we had the genome sequenced by last February, vaccine candidates identified by February or March for phase one trials. We've gone through phase one. We've gone through phase two. We've gone through phase three. Same standard as other vaccines uh, have been held to. And so um, a lot of the, the fact that it's actually been able to happen this successfully and this quickly, I think, is uh, one of the most impressive things that humanity has ever achieved. And I don't think that that's an understatement, given where we were uh, uh, as of 12 months ago to now. Yep. Strong words. Um, another sort of frequently asked question, or it's not really a question because it's more of an assertion. People are like, well, vaccines aren't even subjected to randomized controlled trials. They're not even assessed for safety and efficacy. Uh, <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> so from a, first of all, to make it through to get licensed, you have to demonstrate safety and efficacy. That's the whole purpose of these different phases of trials. And then when you just look for randomized controlled trials in vaccines, you get a substantial amount of data returns when it when you're in PubMed or another sort of you know uh, catalog of medical literature. So for example, the polio vaccine. The 1954 study, this is one of the first randomized controlled trials actually done on a lar- on a large scale um, that we have record of. They took 600,000 individuals, uh, gave half of them either the vaccine or placebo, and then they took another million individuals and observed them over time as controls. And that actually showed that the vaccine was 80 to 90% effective. This has been done also for the measles, mumps, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, and Tdap, which is, again, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. A uh, number of randomized control trials exist on both of those uh, uh, vaccines. One was actually super interesting. They took college kids and they compared adverse reactions and immunogenicity, so development of antibodies towards those uh, viruses or viridae, uh, compared to a homeopathic placebo. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the practices of homeopathy, what they do is they take a, an, a bioactive substance and then dilute it down thousands to uh, many more times over to where it's just water. There's nothing in there, but the idea is that the water remembers. The water is educated now on what <laughs> on what was there. Now, you heard the long sigh from Austin because, again, it is just water. So that's effectively the placebo. Uh, the immunogenicity of the placebo was zero. Zero. Whereas the immunogenicity of the MMR and Tdap vaccines were close to 90% for all viral targets. Sometimes you can't actually run an RCT um, after the phase three clinical trial because it's unethical. 
which is kind of what we were discussing earlier. If you know something works or you have strong evidence to suggest that it works, it's unethical to withhold it from other folks. So what you can do, there's two main types of study designs you can use um, instead. So one is called a cohort study, like a prospective cohort study. You take, uh, you follow a group or cohort of individuals over time that have been vaccinated versus another group cohort that hasn't. Uh, and you follow them in parallel for long periods of time. There was a large Danish Danish study on the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Uh, this was done in, uh, uh, published in the uh, uh, 2017 or 2018. So basically they took 650,000 children born between 1999 and 2010 and followed them until 2013. Uh, and they looked at autism rates in those who had received the MMR vaccine and compared to those who hadn't. It turns out that those who actually received the MMR vaccine had reduced rates of autism. You could make an argument based on that data that the MMR vaccine actually reduces the risk of developing autism, but uh, people don't want to talk about that. Uh, if that doesn't work or if that study design is not suitable for a specific question of interest, you can do a case control study, uh, thereby looking at individuals who have contracted disease versus those who didn't, and then look at the vaccination rate differences between those groups. Uh, so they did this in the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is basically given to adolescents and young adults to prevent cervical cancer in women and uh, other conditions in men. So in this particular study, 25,000 patients total were included, 5,000 developed cervical cancer, and 21,000 didn't. The vaccination rate uh, was much higher uh, in those that didn't develop cervical cancer, uh, it basically cuts the risk of cervical cancer in half if the first dose of the vaccine series, it's a three-dose vaccine series, was given uh, between the ages of 14 and 17 and reduced the rate of developing uh, cervical cancer by more than a third if it was given between the ages of 18 to 20. So multiple different types of study design that you can use when randomized controlled trials aren't uh, suitable or ethical. However, all the vaccines that we currently give that are currently on the schedule, and I listed both, uh, I provided links to both the adult uh, immunization schedule and the children's immunization schedule in the description below. All of those vaccines have randomized controlled trials on both safety and efficacy. So when people say they don't even do RCTs uh, for vaccines, it's just an unfamiliarity with the vaccine development process. It's clear as that. It, there's, there's no argument to be had. Um, because it's just simply untrue. Now, the qu next question that people are going to ask, Dr. Baraki, is like, well, yeah, but what about the long-term effects of this? We don't know. This thing's only been studied now for four months, you said. So uh, what about the long-term effects of this vaccine? Yeah, so there's a few interesting considerations here. I definitely get where that question is coming from, and I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Um, I think that number one is the actual... Uh, mechanism that the vaccine works by. Again, the RNA transcript that goes in the body does its thing and it's degraded really, really quickly. The fact that it like vanishes um, lowers my concern that there are going to be direct long-term effects. Like the plausibility of it uh, is is lower from that standpoint. Um, you know, it's difficult to see how uh, that could happen. But again, we're all terrible at envisioning things that could happen in the future. So, so who knows? But overall, my initial concern from that standpoint is low. The other um, consideration here is that, again, by the time this vaccine gets to gen pop, so to speak, in the in the spring, early summer time frame, we're going to have several more months worth of data from all the people who are going to be getting it up front. So I will let you know what I experience, um, probably normal things and, and uh, uh, you know, um, but we're going to have several months more worth of data. I think it's 
also implausible to see something crop up like years down the line from this. I, uh, there really aren't. That's not really a, a common issue with, with vaccines that, oh, you know, five years later, somebody developed something that was directly attributable to the vaccine, particularly when the vaccine, again, effectively vanishes from the body outside of um, the protein that it causes to be produced and then the antibodies to that protein, which uh, the protein itself is is uh, effectively harmless on its own, doesn't do anything on its own. So, um, but with all that said, that's exactly why we will uh, do the phase four stuff, continue to follow people longer term. I think that you also have to weigh uh, that concern against the long-term, the, uh, the potential long-term effects of actually getting the infection. There, um, the, the infection itself um, can, in, in some individuals, and I'd say a not insignificant fraction of people, develops a pretty robust, uh, uh, sometimes dysregulated immune response. And that's how people get more severe disease and uh, hospitalized. That's where you get to meet me. Um, or you end up in the ICU developing vasculitis and com- uh, complications of that, cardiomyopathies and things like that, that again, I won't say they're common, but once you are uh, dealing with a highly infectious thing that can infect a large swath of the population, even low percentages end up being very large numbers of people. Um, so weighing long-term risks of something that has a low kind of mechanistic plausibility of causing significant long-term risks against long-term risks of actual infection, which we're kind of starting to see crop up a bit here and there, um, is a, is a consideration. All in all, more data will be collected, but personally, uh, this is not swaying me against it. I'm probably going to be getting it. Like I said, probably sometime this month. Look, man, I, uh, I kind of tuned out when you were talking about the biology stuff earlier. DNA, RNA, protein, transcription, translation. I, who knows what you said? Fair enough. But I heard that this vaccine was going to affect my DNA. I heard that this was going to affect my genes. And that's all the stuff that makes me me, right? Uh, no. So uh, this is another important one. This is completely impossible for this to happen, for this vaccine to affect your genes, to affect your DNA. Remember uh, where we started, the DNA lives in the nucleus of your cell and RNA is kind of scribbled out on a scratch piece of paper and that leaves the nucleus and it uh, does not, it cannot get back into the nucleus. It is exceptionally difficult to get RNA back into a nucleus of a cell. It's exceptionally uh, difficult to get DNA into the nucleus of a cell uh, if it's administered like in medication or vaccine form. So not possible for this to get into your genome. uh, and humans cannot turn RNA back into DNA. In other words, to take this recipe and turn it back into a cookbook. We can't do that. So. Yeah, I guess you'd need a phage of some sort to like put some DNA <laughs> yeah. into a place. Yeah, you need a phage and a, and a reverse transcriptase. Ain't going to happen. So, <laughs> Well, uh, I also noticed that uh, when you were describing the ingredients, which I also tuned out for because a lot of words, you didn't know, you didn't say anything about a microchip but I heard that there was a microchip in the vaccine. Yeah, uh, there is not. <laughs> okay. Next. Good, good, good enough for me. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then the last thing that people are going to ask about are like, well, how do I convince so-and-so in my life to uh, get this vaccine? Because they're on the fence or they're, they're vehemently opposed. What would you say to that? This uh, gets to the idea of belief change, which if you listen to any of our other stuff, belief change, behavior change, these are all extremely complex things. And so kind of up front, um, you need to just step back for a second and say like, hey, am I the right person to be having this conversation? Because you may know next to nothing about this vaccine. You may know next to nothing about this whole process. And so you're probably not going to be in a great position to actually 
address their concerns to, you know, an adequate degree. Um, so I think that's one consideration. The other consideration is on their side of the conversation, as far as the likelihood that they'd be kind of open to changing their mind about any aspect of this. Um, and some people are going to be absolutely adamant. They're not going to listen to anything. They're not going to believe anything, uh, et cetera. And, and maybe those aren't necessarily the people uh, where is the best use of our time as far as going through this process of working towards belief change. But if you are in a position to have kind of a, a fact evidence-based conversation on this and you have somebody who is open to discussing the topic and learning about it and things like that, then that's a place where uh, you might actually be able to make some headway, in which case it's important to listen to people, to validate their concerns, to listen to their concerns, and kind of to provide them with the, the evidence that you have. Now, sometimes you're going to run into people who they're going to say they're going to have a concern. You address that concern adequately, and then they just pivot to another one. You address that one, they pivot to another one. You address that one, they pivot to another one. You address that one, and then finally they like flip the table and leave. <laughs> also, yeah. not something, and, and this is, you know, that's exactly what happens in like political conversations, particularly these days, um, which is why we tend to not really get involved in too many of those. But um, so that's, that's kind of why this art of this conversation is really challenging, takes time, takes listening, takes validation, and takes having the facts and evidence kind of on your side. And again, more facts and more evidence are going to be emerging in the coming months to inform more of these conversations. Um, so yeah, I think I think we've talked about this before. If people want like a model of somebody who has a remarkable ability to go through this belief change process, the, the street epistemology guy is, uh, is a boss at, at having these kind of conversations with people. It's a YouTube channel that we've recommended people check out before. Um, remarkable patience and listening ability and conversational ability to, to poke and prod at people's beliefs to, to nudge them in the right direction. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of my overview on that. What would you say? I mean, yeah, a lot of the similar stuff. I mean, behavioral change uh, is, is difficult, uh, particularly as it applies to belief change in order to generate that behavioral change. So I think if someone identifies themselves as being open to change, they've then placed themselves, you know, in a, uh, a position to sort of have a discussion and, and you can kind of, to the extent that you're prepared and you, and you have the information to sort of have that discussion, you, you can do it. But my thinking on this is that most people probably aren't, uh, particularly if they're in that, that group of folks who said, I'm not going to get it. I don't know that there's anything you could say to sort of like, change that, uh, unless you were really good at motivational interviewing, um, and effectively asking questions to elicit the sort of narrative of like, well, why, you know? And, uh, I, I don't know that that's a great use of our listenership's time, but Hey, I could be proven wrong. I just, I, I, I think that we've had enough of these discussions in over various different topics, uh, online and otherwise. So I, I, my thinking is like most people are probably not open to the change and to the extent they are, you can have this conversation and direct people towards additional resources. Um, but that being said, I think we can all be kind to each other about this because it is a difficult time and this is, uh, can be a difficult decision for some folks. And, uh, yeah, don't be a dick. I like that. All right. <laughs> Rapid fire questions. This was, these were submitted on my Instagram photo of Austin, myself and, uh, Sir Tom Capitelli, when we were down in Australia, uh, that was almost two years ago. Yeah, we need to make that happen. Uh, you know, probably this next winter. I'm thinking. Yeah, like if people want to get this vaccine. All yeah. right, so let's uh, <laughs> let's go through some of these questions. Uh, when do you expect the young slash healthy population to get the vaccine in the United States? Uh, so to be clear, I do not know the answer to this question. I don't even have a 
hint of when that's going to happen based on anything that's been published. But my gestalt uh, would probably be spring 2021. Yeah, I think, just, uh, just, late, I think late spring, early summer, probably. Yeah, uh, and that's probably going to be one of the the, the later sort of groups to get the vaccine with probably the last group being folks with uh, either additional medical conditions that like would prevent them from being in their either, you know, age yeah. sort of group or, or other sort of risk factors. I so. guess the, the only other consideration there is that there are other vaccine candidates that may get approved. And if they get approved and produced in mass quantities, then this whole timetable may get moved up earlier if there are, you know, suddenly multiple options on the table for people to get. So that's yep. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Can I still transmit COVID nineteen after being vaccinated? Uh, we don't know. To the extent, that, <laughs> yeah, we don't know. To the extent this trial addressed that, um, it, it looks like there's a decreased rate of uh, transmission from people uh, who developed asymptomatic COVID nineteen. But there weren't enough data points to actually say anything confidently, so I can't say anything confidently about that either. Don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'd enjoy a discussion about which groups should take the vaccine as it rolls out. Yep. So similar stuff. I think it's going to be uh, initially recommended for everybody over the age of 16, uh, except for immunocompromised, pregnant and lactating individuals, and then obviously people under the age of 16. Um, and we'll just see when that all goes down. All right. Uh, let's see. I've read that there are va- uh, concerns from athletes regarding the various vaccines potentially containing elements which would show up on an anti-doping test. No. Uh, I actually did some research into this, so I could not find any case reports of this occurring. Um, there are no adjuvants or preservatives or other sort of contents in any of the vaccine schedules currently in the United States that are on the prohibited list from the World Anti-Doping Association. And uh, so given all of that, I, I, I can say with some degree of confidence that that's not a concern. Um, in addition, the next question that kind of bears out of that is like, yeah, well, like, should I exercise after getting the COVID-19 vaccine or should I like rest for a day? And it looks like the existing data we have, not necessarily on the COVID-19 vaccine, but on the influenza vaccine, it looks like exercise actually increases the uh, immunogenicity of the vaccine. So we talked about that in our exercise uh, and immunity podcast uh, a few months back. So, yep. Yep. Okay. Let's see other stuff that we haven't covered in here. I'm scrolling. Uh, hey, also Johnny Reps Fitness says that you look like a sweet boy in the picture. So oh, that's, uh, that's very kind of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Save that going for you. Let's see. Best strategy for healthcare workers to help our patients understand the safety and necessity of the vaccine and not to buy into the crap they read about it on Facebook. Yeah, I think this is probably actually outside the wheelhouse of most healthcare professionals outside of receiving adequate training about the vaccine, its administration and its indications, like who should who should be getting it. I think this is more of a public health promotion kind of thing that needs to be uh, taken, which is basically just a higher level of sort of uh, 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 care. It's effectively on the, on the ground, you know, boots on the ground physicians. I don't know that they're going to have like a huge impact on this, but the public health promotion, public health messaging and uh, marketing for this vaccine is probably going to take precedent over stuff that physicians in the clinic can do outside of actually knowing um, who the vaccine is for, how to administer it, and then um, handling concerns in the clinic. So, yep, that's my take. Nothing else? No. Oh, okay. Uh, Let's see. Wouldn't it be more logical to mass vaccine the population at risk 
So elderly folks with cancer, pulmonary infections, uh, individuals with obesity uh, as the first priority so people can start living again and stop getting their businesses destroyed for nothing. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there, uh, which we won't do. Yes, we're (laughs) going to initially vaccinate the population who are at risk. Uh, I would question the idea that things are happening for nothing. I definitely think there's a conversation to be had about the actual interventions that have been done from a public health standpoint in terms of, you know, which are effective, which are not, which are justified, which are not harms that have been caused. I think there's a totally a valid conversation around that, but I wouldn't like dismiss the fact that there's a substantial burden of disease and death that's happening as a result of this. And so, yes, indeed, we plan to immunize those who are at high risk. That's all I would say about that, really. Yep. Uh, How do you handle misinformation and skepticism about the vaccine within your circle of family and friends? Uh, I am fortunate in some regard that my circle of friends knows me and uh, this has not been a concern. (laughs) In addition to us sharing many interests and kind of views, which is why we're friends, uh, (laughs) things that they already know, I think are BS. They don't really ask me about, they don't poke the bear, Uh, which is again, fortunate because I don't really have to deal with this. Now my, in my family, this is different (laughs) because sometimes I feel like my dad's just trolling me. Like he'd be wearing the mask, for example. And then when he would take the mask off for like playing golf or whatever, he'd be like, oh man, I couldn't breathe in that thing. And I'm like, I look at him quizzically like, really? That's <laughs> that's what you're going with here? Um, yeah. So uh, in general, handling, you know, uh, disagreements in certain belief systems, again, is what we just discussed. Uh, I think sometimes it's worth saying, yeah, you're probably right. And then moving on. Um and other times, you know, if someone's open to having a discussion, you can have that discussion. And I think it should just uh, revolve around uh, the evidence and uh, to the degree that somebody wants to change their mind based on that and can be coaxed into, you know, questioning their own beliefs. That may be productive. But in general, I think it's a low percentage shot. Thoughts? Yeah. I mean, this is all just rehashing the belief change question again. So I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Uh, do, 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 most do, of them, do, to be honest, that are, that are actual <laughs> questions. Let's see. Yeah. I think we covered, uh, covered all this stuff besides like somebody who got like, you know, was advertising a herpes yeah. uh, cure and the other person ad- advertising Bitcoin trading. So, uh, we'll leave those for the next podcast. There's a question about, uh, ivermectin, which I've actually gotten asked about a couple times. And it's like, once there's a randomized controlled trial showing evidence of benefit, we'll take a look, but until then, it's in the same bucket as hydroxychloroquine and other things that uh, we did not have good evidence of uh, benefit for. So TBD. Yeah, yeah. It's in the same bucket as hydroxychloroquine and, and these other uh, agents uh, before we had evidence that they didn't work. Yeah. Um, so right now we have no evidence for or against. I would, but, I would uh, love for it to work because then I would have more that I could do for patients who have the infection. So once we get that trial, I'll uh, take a look and potentially change my mind. Until then, it's going to be a no. Ooh. Nice. Uh, Well, that about does it for episode 123. This has been the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by Dr. Austin Baraki. Uh, We talked about the COVID-19 vaccine, so hopefully you guys enjoyed that. If you could, take a moment, leave us a five-star rating and a review. really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And uh, hey, we'll catch you next Monday. We have uh, Anthony Barrick coming on the podcast. We're going to talk about all things psychology and that should be a fun one. So tune in next Monday and every Monday right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 